I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. Welcome to School of Everything Else. The Mandalorian, Season 1. With us are four longtime friends of the show Taylor Nova of Gameburst. Hello. Brendan Agnew of Synapse. Zuga! <laughs> Caro Nagisa. I have spoken. And Debbie Morse. This is the way. Both of sequentially yours. Uh, I can bring you all in hot or I can bring you in cold. And we have held off on talking about Mando for more than two years for three key reasons. One is that when it first emerged, there was a barrage of hot takes and week-to-week responses to The Mandalorian. And the UK didn't get Disney Plus for months after the US did. Months! Ah. So we would always have been late to the party. And number two, we needed to see where the Star Wars TV shows were going. And after season two of Mando and The Book of Boba Fett, I believe we have our answer. And finally, the big one. The Rise of Skywalker left me so deflated and despondent over Star Wars that I needed to spend a long while recuperating from that, given how intensely I love The Force Awakens and The Last Jedi, and what high hopes I had for a conclusion. And I will come back to that at the end of the show. So, two things that we're doing on this, which will only cover the first and best season of The Mandalorian. The first is that we are dividing the eight episodes of that season into three movies. The first three concerning Mando's meeting the child and deciding to go against his programming is A Fistful of Beskar. The middle three one-off episodes are For a Few Credits More and the grand finale where the child is in serious danger of disappearing into the very worst of clutches and Mando and his companions are beaten down to almost giving up entirely, threatened by a sinister new presence, but philosophically uplifted by a brave, grizzled little bastard, eventually getting out by the skin of their teeth, the good, the bad, and the ugnaught. (laughs) The other revelation is that this show is brand new for Caro and Debbie, so I will be fairly fascinated to draw upon their fresh experiences here. You guys just finished The Good, The Bad and The Ugnaught today. 30 minutes ago. Wow. This is going to be like fresh off off the presses, just hot off the pan, just two years later than most people. <laughs> and Weirdly, this one did, has, has not gotten that many requests. We were not asked over and over again, do a Mando show. And I'm not sure why, but yeah. like, we, we got so many requests for She-Ra. They were like, do She-Ra, do She-Ra, do She-Ra. But uh, for some reason, not this one. And, and uh, because... I was feeling so down for so long, I just it just didn't really bring me back. But I think it was finishing off the book of Boba and going, I remember this show feeling quite different. And going back and just doing all all of Mando season one, I was like, wow, this this was quite different. It, it it's uh, for for Caro and Debbie, it becomes something else uh, over the next few years. So. Ah. We will start with the... But we're not, we're not really going to talk about that. I'm actually not interested all that much in bemoaning the fate of Star Wars TV. You know, well, we can leave that for later. But I want to start with this initial, what I consider to be victory. Because this is really good stuff. 
So we'll start with the music of Ludwig Göransson, who oh. was Ryan Coogler's roommate in college. We found mm-hmm. out today. Yep. Uh, so that would be why he has scored all of his movies since Fruitvale Station. So he did Creed, which is probably why the finale theme of, of The Mandalorian sounds like a Rocky theme that... that Specifically Rocky 2. Yeah. Um, toward the uh, redemption, the... Uh, what's it called? When it gets out of kind of the funky part, it yeah. goes into a fanfare like that. Yeah, but it... And, and it also sounds like the Creed theme, which sounds like it's been part of the Rocky music since the beginning. That... Uh, but also Ludwig Göransson scored Black Panther and will be doing pretty much everything that uh, Kugler does like you know from now on he's his John Williams I would guess but this I think was his first Star Wars and out of the gate that just that just the the the, the it's it's played on a large right angled recorder it's, does it have a name it's well it's a flute uh, it's, it's a bass recorder it, it's there we are muso thank bass, you bass recorder which is sort of the the crossover point i suppose between the the recorder style yeah. woodwind and the flute style woodwind it's got keys like a flute but it's the material and, and rough <laughs> appearance of a, a recorder but yeah. it, it uh, Something that struck me about the way Goranson's shaped the instruments that he's used for this, because he had to do a lot of it on his own, mm. I'm assuming, because pandemic. No, yeah. it all this hit, this was done before the pandemic. Okay. It was well, released he, yeah. in late 2019 on Pandemic Eve. Gotcha. We were but all good did, little boys and girls, and so we got a pandemic for our troubles. He did specifically say that he did a lot of the, the work for this by himself, just in this room with, hmm. with his own instruments. Yeah. And the, the fact that the two key instruments that he uses to signify... Mando being on his own mm. are this this bass recorder and the, the electric guitar, guitar yeah. but it's a guitar with a, a specifically old 70s mm. style synthesizer that he said you just cannot replicate that sound mm. using a, a yeah. computer. And oh, I yeah, love that kind of it just says yeah. Western, you're on a horse, even though there's not a single horse in this whole series. Uh, yeah, go, yeah, yeah, uh, what, what do you guys uh, think about the, uh, the the tone here? Dude, if if Michael Giacchino, I can never pronounce his name right. Giacchino. 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 My uncle's name was Giacomo, spelled with the same Got beginning. It. I'm wearing Giacchino jeans right now. They are very comfy. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, continue, Taylor. I was going to say, if he's not available to score Star Wars, Mm. we know who to get. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, uh, the uh, Rise of Skywalker was the last uh, John Williams recorded score for Star Wars. I, I feel like it's in good hands at the moment uh, with 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 those two uh, that, that that you mentioned. But um, uh, interestingly, we were like we were watching the uh, there's, there's like four hours worth of extra stuff which we crammed over the past day, uh, and uh, Jacina. and Goranson mentioned that he saw the first season as like three mini movies, and I'm like. Yep, that's exactly what I thought. <laughs> yep. It's kind of perfect. So Mando himself uh, is played by three people. We got Pedro Pascal as uh, the before, voice. Before we get into before we move on from the score. Oh yeah. Just a couple of things I really wanted to talk about. First of all, I love that you can see his influences 
Um, just you can hear his influences. There's definitely Maraconi uh, in there, obviously. Yeah. But the Bill Conti stuff we talked about as mm-hmm. well. It's all coming through, but it's all very original. Mm-hmm. Um, one of Gorenson's best traits as a composer is that he knows how to quickly but naturally switch between tones. Yeah. Like it goes from, like this theme goes from the regular, uh, what's it called, sort of mysterious uh, sort of Wild West horses thing. So, that bit. Exactly. Two. And you can hear sort of where the leitmotifs are. Mm-hmm. So that sort of uh, mysterious bit at the end um, where it gets, he specifically says it is playful yet mysterious. Mm. It is new yet old. And that's basically the leitmotif for the child. Mm. And nice. of course, the fanfare is the leitmotif for the Razor Crest and is playing whenever he is flying it. Oh, right, PD also... Razor Crest. It gets destroyed oh. in season two, the bastards. Oh. Oh. Well, you get the great gag of what happens if you land, stroke, crash a spacecraft in, say, water. Uh, the, so, the other thing about Gorenson's music that, that really struck me this time is how recognizable he makes his themes, because while the we, we think of Mando's theme as so beholden to those instruments, mm. but there's a version of it that plays at the um, in Sanctuary when you're seeing the, the krill farmers, mm-hmm. and it's just a completely different reorchestration of the same of the same notes. Nice. But it's just kind of playing in the Caesar of like, could Mando's like could he, could he belong here right before it's interrupted with violence? So the music is telling you, mm, maybe probably not. This is this is not a place he's going to settle down mm. like thirty minutes before he actually makes that decision. Yeah. Mando himself was kind of a, a masterstroke of going back to basics uh, with Star Wars, since uh, Lucas originally based so much of his aesthetic and so much of his uh, the building blocks of the original uh, Star Wars 77 uh, on westerns and Kurosawa films, and westerns based on Kurosawa films. Yeah. Uh, so it, The snake has begun to eat its own Well, no, no, no. <laughs> it's, it's, not, it's not so much self-consuming as this sort of fluctuating core of influence and Star Wars has as a result always kind of been a western which is why it was relatively easy to make that side of things with Firefly because they hadn't really explored that in Star Wars but that at that point and I don't know if you can recall but in the mid-2000s there was actually a, a lot of plans for there to be a Star Wars live-action show. They had castings, they had scripts written out, they were going to do something that was like Firefly, and they decided against it. And I think a lot of the ideas went into Rebels in the end. Uh, yep. But then that you know kind of carried forwards, and Mando has become what that probably would have been, but very, very focused on this one guy wandering through the world. And... <laughs> The other major element they took was not Boba Fett, but our idea of what Boba Fett was and what Boba Fett could be based on play, because he got like four minutes of screen time in uh, two of the Star Wars films, and then he was a little kid in episode two. Mm. And 
you know, you could sort of extrapolate from that, or he's a mean bounty hunter who goes from here to here to here. Almost immediately, they were like, well, that's not going to be enough, and that's not going to be particularly child-friendly if he's just a scumbag son of a bitch. He kind of has to have something more. So they took that Western angle and went, well, what if it was Lone Wolf and Cub? After having penned Tiger's Eye, that's something that was very close to my heart already. Just the idea of big, tough warrior looking after little defenseless kid who turns out to not be defenseless. I point to him, then my eyes, then myself. Then I assume a low fighting stance. He shakily copies me, spreading his pads out like clawed paws, lowering a center of gravity and bending those awkward forward-facing knees. I nudge him with a paw and he goes over. He gets back up, frowning, and tries again. Again. Once again, he is easy to push over. We try and try until... After much repetition, I'm about to nudge him, and he springs over my paw. (laughs) I catch him easily, but I am pleased and surprised at his improvisation. We try again, but this time he springs up my arm. (laughs) I have to grab him with my other paw. I hold up my arm, show him my sharp claws extended, and mime running them over the muscle. Then I point to him. He obediently makes to scratch at me. (laughs) His claws are comically short and blunt. I mime biting and point to the arm again. I can feel his teeth nip at me. For a moment, I am elsewhere. No good, though. I doubt he could really tear through the flesh. He has very little power. Nothing sharp on his body and seems to have no knowledge of the weak spots to go for. He needs a weapon. One of the uh, influences I'm seeing on this show is Three Godfathers. Hmm. Uh, Have you seen that one? I have not. All right, there's actually three versions, a 1916, a 1936, and a 1948. The 48 is probably the most famous because it stars John Wayne Mm -hmm. um, and was directed by Ford. But it's about three rustlers who rob a bank in town and go out to the desert, lose their horses, get lost in the desert, and eventually run into this woman who is giving birth. And they promise the woman that they're going to get her baby safely out of the desert to somebody who can take care of them. Oh, it's like three men and a baby, but it's a Western. I'm looking at pictures right now. That's what I was thinking. (laughs) Like, even the the poster. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, the uh, three leads in that one, John Wayne, Pedro uh, Armandias, mm-hmm. and Harry Carey Jr. are mm-hmm. all phenomenal. I highly recommend the 46 version. I haven't seen the other two, but or the 48 version. The uh, 48 version, yeah. That's the John yeah. Ford one. I will, we will check that one out. Uh, it's appropriate uh, that John Wayne was one of the three godfathers. Uh, uh-huh. Brendan Wayne uh, plays part of Mando. It's in the tradition of Darth Vader... The character of Din Djarin, Mando, is a composite, you've only just heard his name, is a composite of multiple different actors. So uh, we've got Pedro Pascal as the voice. Uh, Latif Crowder de Santos is the fighter version of Mando. So whenever he, when he got into that massive scrap with uh, 
Cara Dune in uh, episode four, that's Latif. And any time that guns come into play, Brendan Wayne is his body. I don't know how much Pedro Pascal actually walks around in the outfit. Obviously, when it's re- when it was required for him to take off his helmet that, uh, in that last episode, obviously indefinitely. I don't know how much he embodies him, though. But Brendan Wayne is John Wayne's grandson. So effectively, uh, in the same way that uh, Darth Vader was the voice of uh, James L. Jones, the body of David Prowse, uh, Bob Anderson uh, doubled for him for a lot of the sword fights, and then Sebastian Shaw, when he finally had his helmet taken off uh, at the end of uh, Return of the Jedi, he's this amalgamation of different performances and different actors, and and yet he's one guy. And after years and years of them saying no, we can't do a Halo movie. That's just a helmet. No one can emote through that. As it turns out, someone can emote through that and do it really, really well. The amount of screen time he's ever shown without his helmet is seconds. Another connection that I made to this one Mm -hmm. is I'm wondering if his name being Din Mm -hmm. is a reference to Paladin from Have Gun Will Travel. Ah. I can't guarantee that's the case, but that's what that was my first thought as soon as I heard his name. I was worried when I first saw the trailers. I was like Stormtrooper heads on spikes in Tatooine. If you remember that back way back when, uh, I was thinking, is this just going to be like really rough, grim Star Wars? But almost immediately, it becomes very child accessible. It's it's quite a balancing act that they manage throughout this. Uh, I've heard some people say that this would be the first thing they show to their kids to do with Star Wars, and I'm like, you know what? Not too far wrong with that. Like, you know, it, my personal suggestion would be the first season of Rebels, which Willow really warmed to in a way they hadn't done for the original trilogy and definitely hadn't done for the prequels. And then for a very brief time, they loved The Force Awakens. They loved Rey. They loved Finn. They wanted this world and they wanted to explore it. And then the backlash to The Last Jedi sealed the deal on the gatekeeping fanboys. And Willow didn't want to know anymore. How's it going, guys? Hashtag not my Luke. The, the fact that Baby Yoda is there, so adorable, and such an obvious, this thing must be protected. Like, most kids will be able to immediately gel with and like this character. Because as scary as he is, the idea that he's kind of soft underneath that hard, hard armour is incredibly appealing. Well, it's the, it's the balance between having a world where the danger is not real, mm. and a world where the danger is very real, but most of the adults around... <coughs> the child characters are going out of their way to protect them. If if you've got a child who has everybody who comes anywhere near him is trying to keep him safe, mm. then that can be very reassuring for little children to watch because it makes them feel like even if the world outside is very bad, there are adults around me who will look after me and keep me safe. Whereas you look at, say, for example, Phantom Menace... Mm. Anakin gets himself into multiple dangerous situations, is placed in multiple situations that are dangerous to him by the adults around him, and yet walks away without a scratch on him. Yippee. Uh-huh. Let's try spinning. Is, That's a good trick. <laughs> this this is the difference, I feel, between the way that The Mandalorian is, for lack of a better phrase, like family-friendly compared to, like you were talking about, the prequel, Sharon, because this feels like it takes place in a world where there are those 
darker elements and its danger and it, and it really does feel like a western that's playing for keeps but and you feel like you're seeing these things that do happen in that world that are sometimes violent and scary but the way the the film's tone handles it and the way that the directors all shoot it it's it's almost like they're shooting it for baby yoda so that this this stuff can feel dangerous but mm. there's someone with an arm around you and an and a hand ready to cover up your eyes when a guy gets cut in half with a door nice. so that you know it, it does it like the prequels don't they they feel like a, a track laid out in front of Anakin whereas this actually feels like a sandbox that baby Yoda has been dropped into and needs someone to guide him through uh the masterstroke of getting a puppet baby Yoda as opposed to a little CGI gonk thing that could have just been it, that it couldn't it wouldn't necessarily have ruined the whole show, but it could have been really annoying mm-hmm. if it had been talking and jabbering and hyperactive. But there's something about how delicate and slight and slow <laughs> and yet inquisitive Baby Yoda is, and those huge eyes that just make it him him incredibly appealing. I believe they had. If I remember rightly, when they were talking about it in the behind-the-scenes shows, they had some CG retouching lined up mm. to just enhance certain scenes. So like the shape of water. And, yeah, and the original plan had been, especially for some of the close-up scenes and the ones with uh, Werner Herzog in, in particular, to have the The puppet. baby Yoda. It will be delicious. <laughs> you must bring him to me. <laughs> and the A1 sauce. <laughs> have the puppet there for him to interact with and then they were going to do what do they call it a clean plate mm-hmm. shot without the puppet so right. that they could put add in a cg, CG dude, yeah. uh, action in afterwards mm-hmm. and uh herzog was saying to them no you, you need to just go with the 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 puppet have keep this magical little thing inside yeah. the screen and <laughs> the they they kind of they did the plate clean plate anyway, but then they ended up not doing the CG because the puppet shots looked yeah. good enough anyway. Good enough. I mean, yeah. he I, was a I legitimate mean, phenomenon mind. on the uh, internet. He was immediately beloved and memed into uh, insanity. Mm. Yeah, and I mean, keep in mind that it's he's an alien being. It's not like we have a real life something to. Yeah compare him to so if he looks like a puppet that's just how that race looks yoda looked like a puppet too because mm-hmm. he was mm. the Except moment he, he looked, looked wrong yeah. was when he was leaping around the place where the friggin lightsaber going yeah, I was like a mosquito on crack they learned their lesson from the prequels cgi mm. bad well it's no we you and i have had this conversation since t- tempus <laughs> immemorial aka forever <laughs> Sometimes CGI okay, but practical preferred. Mm. And, well, CGI enhancement, good. There exactly, you go. yeah. yeah. It's, it's using the CG to tweak something to make it look better. Mm-hmm. And that way you have that practical imperfection that makes something feel real. Mm. A crease that falls in a certain way that an animator wouldn't necessarily think to put in. <clears throat> yeah. It, it's a tool. Mm. It's mm. That's... That's all it is. It's a tool, and it has its place. It's just too often been overused. Yeah, I think the best example is probably uh, the Tremors series, where mm. which started out with some amazing practical oh. effects, mm. and by the third one had one practical effect 
Um, and the rest was all really terrible CGI. Oh, you are talking me out of seeing those sequels. <laughs> don't, don't do it. I still have yet to watch Shriekers Island, and they put Jamie Kennedy into that franchise. Oh. Did they put him into a tremor? No. Ah. It, it, it's worth it for Burt Gummert. I will say that much. Imagine if, uh, instead of Baby Yoda, uh, Mando was trying to protect the baby from Twilight. With its grotesque eyes and its weird adult face, I think people would have been like, "Just, just let it die." Just, but uh, the baby from American Sniper. Oh yeah, well that that was practical at least. Okay, actually, but speaking of, and this is something I was going to say but completely forgot. um, Much like uh, again, when I saw the uh, the previs stuff and the the trailer stuff for uh, Mando, I was like, "Oh god." Is this going to be like Rogue One, which has a weird level of power fantasy when it came to when Vader was carving up those uh, rebel troops? It's just such great fun to see uh, Robert E. Lee um, murdering uh, Union soldiers. But, um, yeah. Or a Gestapo officer shooting allies. Uh, but Mando, much like Blondie or, or the man with no name in, in uh, Sergio Leone's Dollars trilogy, gets the shit kicked out of him on a regular basis. He gets tricked, he gets beaten up, he gets trapped, he fucks up, and he ends up really badly off. And, and that's great, so because that's the opposite yeah. of a power fantasy. That was part of the um, appeal of Firefly as well. Yeah. The Serenity crew is always on the back leg. On the raggedy edge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's better that way, as opposed to Boba Fett always gets his man. He's always great at everything. Like, he, he got to do that one, that pull off that one job on Bespin, Boba did. And he must have got away going, oh, that was good. Oh, I looked really cool there. And, you know, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I finally, like, Boba's finally won one at this time. Jabba's going to be so proud of me. And then See, are uh, we overlooking? Are we overlooking the amazing work he did in the holiday special? Uh, we are. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but oh, there, there are of course links there. The, um, the folks at home must have uh, watched a whole bunch of stuff. But if you if you go to Disney Plus, there's something called the Faithful Wookie, which is the animated bit from the holiday special cleaned up. So the origin, the first ever bit of Boba that we we got to see prior even to the action figure was this. It was like. He's planned for the Empire Strikes Back. The uh, the last action figure from the original Kenner 1977 Star Wars line was Boba Fett, and there was this mail-away uh, for him, which meant that kids were getting Boba bef- after the holiday special, before Empire Strikes Back, and they were making up all kinds of, like, this guy looks so cool, because he was definitely the coolest looking of all the original Kenner figures. And yeah. I honestly think that as well as like looking cool on screen the way that Darth Maul did, it's the build-up in our minds that made us feel like Boba Fett could handle anything. So it's neat to see Mando have all that gear, have pretty like slowly collect a bigger and better suit of armor and eventually a jetpack, and still fuck up. <laughs> quite so much. It makes him so much more human than our infantile brains would have made this invincible, unkillable bounty hunter. 
A fallible hero is always much more interesting than the perfect hero yeah. for Jedi's. Yeah. We love it. We love a, an underdog. Yeah. Always. I was about to say film because Alex has got me thinking about the, the the way it breaks off into like three different acts. Mm-hmm. But um, the the first like segment of episodes is so good about establishing that balance that you're talking about because mm-hmm. we get to see him use just enough of his tools to have a leg up on most situations. Right up until the point where he gets his legs cut out from under him by Jawas. Yeah. And so we we see immediately, okay, here are the hard limits on the things that he can do. And the the entire rest of the series is about how he's trying to find other people to kind of like, you know, help him out. We're in areas where he he just can't. He's he's just one guy. He's mm-hmm. a guy with a you know he's a guy who's got a good suit of armor and who's good with the weapons. But that's all, and it's a big ass galaxy. Yeah, he's also presented repeatedly with the chance to just do the selfish thing: just take the Beskar and go, leave the baby where he is, forget about him, go and do the rest of your job. And like every time he decides to do the right thing, he's punished for it. As in, it is hard to do the right thing in this world and he's up against it at all times and it creates a sense of risk v reward throughout the whole of Mando like he's got to be careful and he's always after Beskar and I love the way that they make Beskar special almost immediately and for some reason uh-huh. Willow really latched onto the idea of Beskar they were like okay so this is like Star Wars Mithril and that's really cool <laughs> and the fact that the armorer uh, is is female and played fantastically by the way by Emily Swallow uh, with yes. that sort of you know very stern authoritative like this like you can you can gather just from her character the kind of like dogmatic upbringing that this guy has had. Like he's so when, you know, she's saying this is the way, this is the way he actually comes off as kind of innocent in a way that you almost wouldn't Mm. expect from someone who looks so badass. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. There's there's a, a a knowingness about her, almost a crone-ness about her because you just know if she's been the armorer at this location for a long time, how many Mandalorians has she seen Mm. pass through, get killed, lose their armor, Mm. get beaten up and and smashed about. She's recycled their wrappings. Absolutely. And she has that, like, whenever she says this is the way, it's like she's reinforcing the dogma, Mm. but there's just a slight little edge of, is this the way? Is this the way for you? Is this still working for you? She's a mother superior. Yeah. Mm, A little bit. Yeah, but it also seems to draw Is it the way she's going to wrap you on the knuckles with a ruler? (laughs) Sorry, carry on, carry on. I think I think it has more of a uh, Jewish traditional st- um, approach to theology to it, mm. where followers are encouraged to question. So she wants she wants him to ask, "Is this the way?" and continue to say yes. Yeah, and there is a distinction between uh, Orthodox Mandalorians and those who are a little bit more. Well, you know, we'll eat ham on Reformed. the weekends. And we yes. can take our helmets <laughs> off. And for goodness sake, have a shower. You know, because yeah. his head must stink. But the the what you were saying about his it's hard for him to do the right thing. It is. And we see him repeatedly go up against it when he's chosen to, to protect the child rather than just leaving him behind and, and letting fate do what it will with him. 
but he's never punished. Well, not he's never punished. He's always punished. He's, no, no, no. But when he chooses... He's bleeding out of his head and he's about to <laughs> die at the end. When he chooses to trust, he do- it doesn't do that thing where when he trusts somebody, they stab him in the back. Uh, except in The Prisoner. Actually, I suppose he, don't, he never really trusted anyone there. Yeah. yeah. But there are numerous people in this that he trusts <laughs> and that trust is borne out. Except for the gunslinger, like there are lots of times. But I think the the show does a really good job of going. Well, this person's dodgy as fuck. You don't trust them, and neither does he. Yeah. Yeah. That's, but what yeah. I mean is that what we've been talking about in in certain TV shows where the tone is quite clearly, if you trust anybody, it will bite you on the ass. Yeah. That was over that was my worry. Again. The 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 Game of Thronesness of it all. The idea that uh, you, that that to be able to get ahead at all, you had to be a backstabber, and that if you were good and decent, you would die and be swept away uh, off the playing board. And uh, it discourages decency. Hmm. Not so much for that story to be out there, but for that story to be the text which informs upon our culture. And the fact that it ended with, a, oh, bollocks, we don't know how to end this. At absolute best, it's a cautionary tale. There, It says everyone who acts upon the behalf of others is a sucker. And there's also no end to that. There's no good, like, satisfying, ah, and this all kind of came back r- around. There's no, just a kind of a... How do you how do you get the people who are being decent, even just one person who is being decent, to get ahead in that circumstance? The only outcome for this is that all the good people get killed. Yeah, or that the good people become so backstabby that they you can't tell the difference. Mm. So, Werner Herzog, I don't know if you uh, saw any stuff about him... Uh, or, or any interview material with him, he was positively thrilled to be in a Star Wars. It was so sweet <laughs> to see him. He is this incredibly serious man who's done documentary after documentary, kind of uh, assessing humanity and looking into the dark abyss of uh, existence. And, uh, you know, it's, it, it, I see nothing here but chaos, disharmony, Und murder, and then like he's just this is a world of wonder, and he's just so uh-huh. seriously happy to be able to play this this totally you know like, like scumbag guy, but he brings this presence to the client that's extraordinary, and, and there are times in The Mandalorian where they just rely on human performance which are at complete odds with some later things they do that we're not going to talk about that are far too reliant on algorithmically produced CGI replication of people. Werner Herzog is such a cool left turn in the this is a character in a Star Wars that doesn't feel like they should be in a Star Wars but fits in perfectly because of that. Mm. It's sort of like it's... I guess in a very other end of the spectrum sort of situation similar to Han Solo, where Han Solo is like the guy who reacts to all this crazy alien gobbledygook the way you would think a normal dude would. Mm. But like Werner Herzog is just like he said, like, I have been down the heart of darkness and the soul of man. And now I am just (laughs) sitting here enjoying the company of these Muppets. (laughs) (laughs) 
And it's just so... But you do want him to feel like kind of a hidden monster because he wants to, like, you know, suck the force juice out of a baby. Yeah. And so yeah. That, that, that like, contradiction of, like, why is my flesh crawling when he's just talking <laughs> very quiet? Oh, that's why. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's phenomenal casting. And uh, that... Carl Weathers of uh, in this one. I, I had written him on the list of uh, allies, but uh, to begin with, um, his, his character Grief Karga is is actually an antagonist, and he he's the one who ends up uh, staring down Mando with a whole bunch of his uh, his guys. This is the comeuppance of not walking away, mm. and uh, he he has a presence to him which you'd think a man of his age and and you know quiet like you're just like uh, you know I used to be this massive guy in in Rocky again. There's another Rocky thing, and and now he's just sort of an old man, but he's got a real presence to him and a real kind of you know you really don't want to mess with this guy i love the way he carries the humor as well there's a brilliant mm. scene where for a, a little bit later on where they're effectively playing sidekick poker mm-hmm. in the desert and he's <laughs> yes. like okay i have brought these dudes you have brought these dudes okay uh maybe she should stay at the ship with the baby no 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 she's coming with me mm. it's like yeah. <laughs> i'm coming with you but this is the degree to which i'm trusting you my sidekicks are coming with me too and the humor is so key as well the uh, weathers uh, at one point is injured and baby yoda c- makes towards his arm to use the healing powers that ray had just discovered like a few weeks around about this time and uh, Carl Weathers lurches back and goes, he's going to eat me. It's fantastic. <laughs> yes. How could he fit more than a mouthful of you? I don't know, dude. Oh, I, 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 sit, I, I imagine him like Nibbler. Like just the whole <laughs> of Carl Weathers could fit in that. That's thing. true, actually. Willow did point out that several times he swallows frogs that are bigger than he is. Yeah. yeah. Who um, knows what his uh, digestive system's like. He might be a mini Sarlacc in there. <laughs> <laughs> I actually noticed this time that that Baby Yoda was totally trying to heal Mando in in episode I think two right after he gets oh, nice. creamed by that blurg, and yeah. and that's when he's just doing the oh get back in your stroller baby why you kids got to be getting into stuff but no uh-huh. they they planted that shockingly early mm. oh uh, save Queel for the good the bad and the ugnor because that is his gig uh, I know he turns up around about the time with the uh, the Jawas and their disgusting egg but. Um, <laughs> I love that, by the way. The, the We have stolen everything of value from your ship. It is now just a skeleton. And we will trade it back for this hairy egg. It's, it's Jawa logic, yeah. but it's it's like you know they they have this kind of well we we scavenged it so this is this is definitely our stuff right like I I don't know why you'd want to have that back that's stealing <laughs> like, yeah um, oh the finders keepers clause I didn't realize that was there and and what is it this egg must be really valuable to you if you're gonna steal all my stuff and then give me it all back for this what no you just no you just you're just, just gonna eat it, it. You just, yep just just this it. gross yeah. fucking egg just like hungry yeah they're like kids with a giant Kinder egg. At Easter, going, ah, I'm just getting armfuls of this fondant out. Sorry, Cabra's creamy egg. Although, who knew Jaws was so flipping dangerous? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the whole, like, clinging to the sand crawler thing is so awesome. We never got to see Jawas inside the cockpit but uh, that thing is actually really formidable, and just trying to climb the side, it reminded me of playing Super Star Wars on the uh, on the SNES. But uh, just the, uh, it has this real weight to it. Now, question: Does everyone know how this was filmed and what the location stuff involved? Yeah. Okay. Uh, go for it for folks at home. 
Um, essentially, all of the sets had these what was it, LED screens mm-hmm. in a circ in a circular um, positioning around them, mm-hmm. and that's what the backgrounds were. So instead of having to do full CGI and whatnot, it was basically digital matte paintings mm-hmm. throughout, which also adds to the sort of. Uh, the sort of Western feel of the whole thing. Yeah. I, I thought that it was like just one big <clears throat> screen that you'd put like yeah. a rear projection behind Mando. But then I saw the actual rig, the actual room setup. It's like this giant arena with a ceiling that will be the sky. So they can effectively surround their actors with reality in documentary form. Is it like those, the 3D cinema screens like it feels like like that where they project everything up on and around you and uh, while i would be like no practical 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 don't don't do this this is like cg this this falls somewhere in the middle where i'm like this is so innovative and you can't see the join and they've also slaved it to the cameras so that when you move the cameras left and right the backgrounds that are in the view of the cameras also shift ever so slightly to mimic the movement of if you were actually there, which seals the magic trick. And it takes a lot of telling yourself they're in a studio when you're looking at what is absolutely obviously Tunisian wastes. I would yeah. say, honestly, oh. this falls on the side of of preferable to doing it for real for me in, in pure practical terms. Because we have seen over and over again what happens when you fly people out to locations. Tunisia. They get sick you give harrison ford diarrhea he has to shoot a swordsman it's not good (laughs) (laughs) it's it's ultimately safety is a big thing in this day and age Mm. and this is safer and you've still got that element of giving your actors something to bounce off for a tv show i think for for this there was a lot in the making of stuff about maintaining control and i got john hammond vibes in my head mm. <laughs> the, the uh, like you know we have when we have absolute 100% control of everything you can see on screen i was like holdo's going to turn up and go you never had control that's the illusion <laughs> but think about for example Murder on the Orient Express. Yes. It's the same principle as what they did with the train. That's true. Because that they couldn't, true. if they filmed on a real train, the shaking was too impractical yeah. for them to film in. And, it was and if you noisy. compare it to the pokey little 1970s one with P.T. Ustinov, where they had to film inside a train carriage and they couldn't get their camera moving uh, with enough mobility to not make it feel claustrophobic and like you were going to bang your elbows wherever you moved. Yeah. Hmm, Okay. For a few credits more, the first major character you meet is Cara Dune, and uh, Gina Carano pollutes this entire show and drives me insane because her screen presence is fantastic and we loved her until she went crazy and became a super right-wing turf. Well, declared that she was a super right-wing turf and uh, then joined... Twitter for people who are even more horrible than uh, than the people who are horrible on Twitter. What's it called? 
I can't even remember, and I don't think is it many Gab or Gab. Gestapo Gab? I don't know. There, there's that? so many other ones like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, um, she, the, the turfy side of things, she actually kind of walked back and credited Pedro Pascal for re-educating her on. Really? What yes, Disney... Because Pedro, Pedro Pascal turned out to be fucking wonderful. Indeed. Pedro yeah. Pascal has a transistor? Yeah, yeah. 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 And that, but, but, yeah that was, he was very troubled by the fact that Corona yeah. was spouting off all of this shit. Absolutely. What, it started with joke tweets, which is often how yeah. it starts, where you're like, Indeed. oh, my pronouns are yeah. Game Boy or something but, like that. Like, like I said, she kind, of, she kind of walked a lot of that back, but the what Disney still ended up throwing her off for was a series of tweets that had some uh, concerning racist connotations to them <sighs> and that ultimately was the thing that drew a line under her being it's in this. even more frustrating watching her in interviews because she actually seems like a decent person but then you know horrible yeah. stuff just like uh, I'm done I don't want to talk about her anymore but she, she's a fantastic physical presence in this show and unfortunately every time she's on screen I wanted to be off it's yeah, so annoying yeah, because yeah. this this character Cara Dune mm. is a character I think Star Wars needed. Absolutely, mm-hmm. yeah. The the, the the hate boys were so angry that Mando uh, drew to a no score draw with a fight with her. They were like, "How can a woman beat up a man?" And it's like, this is the well. toughest woman in the world who could kick <laughs> all of your asses at once. Yeah, <sighs> yeah, and but. I remember uh, just last night I was watching, or no, this this morning when we were watching it, I'm sitting there like, wow, I wish Gina Carano weren't such an awful person mm. because I genuinely believed in her um, performance. And honestly, she's probably one of the better MMA fighters turned actresses mm. that we've had. Yeah, um, Ronda Rousey also turned out to be Ooh. crazy. And like, was she posting anti-vax yeah. stuff? I forget. I yep. don't know. Oh, she, she was. was yeah. She was a Sunday Hook denier as well. She ah, was, that was oh. the one. Yeah. Yes, that was uh, Ronda, crisis uh, actors. It was. It was dwarves dressed as act. children pretending to be dead children. Good, good oh, thinking. Oh yeah, and she can't act because let's face it. Just to draw it back to a different franchise, you had Gina Carano and Ronda Rousey in the Fast and Furious, and mm. she was Karina was the better actress there as well. Oh, yeah. 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 Absolutely. But Star Wars needs this this literal strong female character to say, yeah. "Hey, no, look." And I think it, she's a, I want to say orbital shock trooper, but that's Halo, isn't it? No, well, no, it's, yeah, she is a, uh, she was a rebel shock trooper. Yeah, you know, yeah. and it, again, it was showing a different side. This is what I love about the Mandalorian is its world building, the extras it's adding to this universe is mm. fascinating because it is showing. Hey, look, the rebels had to have these kind of troopers here and she is a badass and she has all sorts of issues but she's such a again we're back to the problem that she's portrayed fantastically but mm. the actress portraying her is yeah. question mark, to say the least. i mean they, they, they don't even need to recast they just bring in another strong woman who isn't crazy i yeah. do hope they they keep like you know go like building towards like that luisa ideal mm. because one of the things that Star Wars has never really flaunted has been like big bodies doing the big crunchy action stuff, which it's never necessarily needed. But the fact that we got it specifically from a female character getting to showcase it the way she does. And, yeah. and I honestly think Bryce Dallas Howard does a pretty slam bang job, like showcasing the character's combat skills in, yeah. in both of their, their big, like yeah. the, their big showcases in this episode. And also, they, she makes the ATST scary. Yeah, it was like a dragon. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, yeah. they, 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 you know, playing the games, watching the movies, those things are just, you laugh at them because they're silly. You watch this up and you go, no, they're terrifying. Mm. Yeah, I, oh, I've fought enough of them in video games to not be like, they're silly. Like, they are really formidable in most of the, uh, like, Shadows of the Empire and Force Awakens. So, uh, Force Unleashed. Yeah. Well, and the ATST in that particular episode was basically Eli Wallach in, um, in uh, Magnificent Seven. Mm. Uh, yeah, that's it's their Calavera, um, but the legend of Calavera, not so much the actual character. Yes. Speaking of uh, uh, analogs for uh, Western actors, we're not going to be talking about the Book of Boba or uh, Mando season two, but there is a character who turns up in uh, one of the penultimate episodes of Boba, who is doing Lee Van Cleef in The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly so perfectly that I was like, why was this character not there from the beginning? <laughs> of, oh. At least of the beginning of The Book of Boba, but he could have been throughout Mando as well. He's just, like, his delivery was terrifying. But, wow. Uh, those who've seen Book of Boba know exactly who I'm talking about. Um, Peli Moto, played by Amy Sedaris. Yay! One of Yay. my favourite characters in this show. Comes back repeatedly in uh, in later seasons. Uh, every time I hear her voice, I think of Princess Carolyn. Are you saying that Van Sand Camp wants to recan on Van Camp? Because they can't! Uh-huh. I love her. Yeah. Like She owns that part of Tatooine, like that little docking bay. It's, it's her playpen, and you don't piss her off in there. And, and she'll say what she's thinking, and she never really gets... Um, scared even when she's being held at, at, at gunpoint like she's not like ridiculously fearless but she has a sort of a she knows where she stands morally absolutely <coughs> and in terms of her confidence as well it's that there's a there's a confidence that comes with knowing that the skill that you have mm. is needed if you want to get on and off planet and you don't have Imperial ships and mm. engineers, etc., behind you. Well, that's you. the real trick, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> if you need parts, you go through yeah. her. But I also like the fact that she's not a goody two shoes. When she finds Baby Yoda, she's like, "Ooh, we're going to watch you, and then we're going to charge extra for that." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she's very clearly a character who's like she's lived through two major galactic wars. Her mm. her character's old enough to have been around during the Clone Wars times, and so you. Amy Sedaris says like, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> she's beautiful, but 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 she plays like an actual human who's who's not necessarily been in the middle of things because Tatooine is not that bright center of the universe. Mm. But that doesn't mean that didn't bump up against her. It's just like yeah, you know what this. It could be worse. Could have been five years ago. Yeah, she reminded me a lot of Tignataro's character in Discovery. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. Yes, she does. That's what I liked about her, to be honest. Yeah. Actually, I, when I heard you say Tignataro, I was like, yeah. Before I'd even heard you say Discovery, I was thinking of um, Army of the Dead, which she's the best yeah. thing in. Yes. But, oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah. This is uh, the the gunslinger, the episode where we also meet Toro Calican, played by Jake Carnival, uh, son of Bobby Carnival. And I felt like this was trying to go back and do the same thing again that they did in The Last Jedi, which is, okay, let's take a Han Solo-type character 
and make you really want them to be a cool Han Solo type, but it turns out they're a dastardly traitor. And in both occasions, DJ and this guy, I'm like, this guy's a little shit, and he's going to betray you the moment he has the chance, and he has no fucking charisma. Which is weird, since one of them was played by Benicio Del Toro, who does have charisma. Uh, So I feel like they bungled this attempt twice now. I'm hoping that they can do it a third time and actually pull it off and and deliver us a, a character played by someone that we're like, yes, you're finally in Star Wars. You're so cool. Oh my God, you betrayed them, you bastard. Because if Jason Momoa went, sorry, Finn and Rose, I got to get paid, and then just wandered off with his first order money, leaving them to die and the entire resistance with them, and didn't come back like Han because he doesn't have a heart of gold and a uh, external conscience demon in the form of Chewbacca, that might actually get some of us to rethink what we value about cool people. Cue loads of libertarian videos on YouTube going, yeah, DJ was right, you gotta get paid. Don't you want to be cool? Come to my seminar, it's only $8,000. I think the the difference between DJ and this guy mm-hmm. is that DJ is completely amoral. Mm-hmm. He, uh, he is how Han Solo kind of wishes that he could be at the beginning of uh, New Hope. Yeah. Whereas this guy is a fanatic. He wants to get into the guild, and his only guide, his only guidance for his behavior is what is going to get me into the guild. See, he reminded me of um, the kid in Unforgiven who's like shooting his mouth off all the time about how many people he's killed, and I'd almost feel more sorry for him there to to observe his overcompensation. But he's got yeah. this cold kind of, I'm going to do this, then I'm going to kill you, then I'll get into the guild thing where I'm just like, fuck off and die. And he obligingly does. Yes. There's also it's- an element of utter idiocy about his obsession and the, the fact that the way he phrases it when he says, if I kill you, I won't just be, they won't just let me into the guild, I'll be legendary. It's like, you made that up. Nobody in the guild said, go out and kill Din Djarin and we'll let you in and, mm. and you'll, you, we'll hero worship you. No, you will at best be the tea boy like everyone else is when they first start. Yeah. <laughs> it is noteworthy that Din uh, Jaren walking around in that Beskar armour is walking around in a million bucks and yeah. every time yeah. someone sees him they're like I wonder how I could poison him <laughs> or how I could get him out of that friggin armour there's uh, several times in season 2 uh, Carol and Debbie that he just he falls afoul of various traps do you remember when in season 1 uh, the armourer says would you like me to make what's the little whistling birds they, they call the, whistling yeah birds. the little needles that go into his thing that like heat seekers and I was like you're going to waste Beskar on bullets but then I realized how, what a great idea that was. It means that he doesn't have an I win button where he just presses the wrist thingy and fires that off and then he beats everyone in every fight. Because it requires Beskar, which is precious, it means there is a limitation there for him. He can only use it so many times yeah. so he has to be choosy about it. Yeah. In fact, he does waste it in uh, one episode. Yeah, it's frustrating. You're like, oh no, all that best guy. Go they cost. Go pick that up. The other thing is, though, <laughs> yeah, yeah. how much use is Beskar, it is like Mandalorian armor, if you do steal it? Because you'd have to get a Mandalorian armorer to mm. melt it down yeah. to make it back into ingots. Where did you get and this? And if you just try and sell it to anybody, it's like really, really recognizable diamonds. The only people who are going to yeah. buy them from you are people who are going to undercut. 
cut you huge. Yes. And stolen Beskow is a little like Nazi gold. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Especially if it's got a signet on it. But I mean, that's that's the parallel, the, the chilling parallel when Werner Herzog's client puts that ice cream maker from The Empire Strikes Back that that guy was running around with, ha ha ha, um, down and just flips it open and Beskar comes out. You're like, where did that come from, you weird Nazi? Yeah. That's neat. That's one of the things, that, one of the few things I, I appreciate about Toro Calican is that sort of like sometimes accident. Like, I think it's not accidental with the Beskar, hmm. but with Toro Calican, it might have been like an accidental, like, here's what most fanboy self insert characters would be they would be dumbass chodes who think they're cool bounty hunters, mm. who just like make up their own fan fiction about their own legend and then get. And then just get fucking merch because they're dumb. I never saw him train either to fire that blaster and, and shoot a, a woman point blank in the gut. I think he's a bit of a Mary Sue. <laughs> a little bit of no, no, How no, does no, he know no, how to ride that that speeder bike? We so never well. saw it happen, so it's mm. you know yeah, I'm not just going to see that he can ride it and assume he must have uh, trained. I think that's a bit too much of a stretch for your audience. Um, anyway, uh, Fennec Shand, Ming Na Wen, you'll be happy uh, to uh, hear Carol and Debbie. She comes back quite a lot in uh, in future episodes. She Yay. is not dead. And uh, we, we 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 listened to We Hate Movies um, uh, Mandalorian half hour episodes uh, after watching uh, this. And uh, there were a lot of internet rumors uh, of uh, who those feet belonged to. And they were just, they were throwing out the window. People are saying that's Boba Fett. Bullshit. Just because it's got spur noises, it's totally Boba Fett. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, those were some great episodes worth being a patron of We Hate Movies for, especially that episode of The Book of Boba Fett. Uh, How do I not spoil this? It was near the end. Boba Fett wasn't in it at all, and it was like a CGI thing talking to a puppet, and they just went off on one. It was so entertaining. No, I shouldn't care about the fucking character I've been watching since I was born. No, I shouldn't care about that. I should care care about what was in a fucking cartoon during the Iraq War, which I was an adult, (laughs) and I know people who fucking died in the war. Man, Eric, you are going to be so upset when the next episode ends with fucking Obi-Wan Kenobi from a time portal saving the day. (laughs) You have a guy. You have a guy who is one of the... A-est grade best fucking vocal performers we have going. You don't even let the motherfucker use his own voice. You got a computer to do it. If at the end of the, the Mandalorian season, I can see it as like an a, a exclamation point at the end of a phone message. It doesn't really make sense, but fine. I can deal with it. This is like if you like wrote an entire your suicide note in Wingdings. And they were digging Mando for a lot of it. They did not care for the Book of Boba. But back to Ming-Na Wen. I was pleased to see her back. She definitely gives extra scope to Jameera Morrison's Boba Fett uh, as we move on later. He did not turn out how anyone would have expected. Uh, I don't particularly hate what they did with him, but a lot of people are furious. Good. (laughs) I think Karu just stepped to the bathroom, and Mm. I will add for him that... He he has such a dislike of Boba Fett just because like what we see of him mm. like he's he's a real loser and so many people have him built up into this like Christ figure practically. Yeah. The only yeah. successful thing he did was make a phone call once. Yeah. <laughs> 
Oh, hey, Darth, Darth, I got that tip. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No disintegration, that, no disintegration. Other than that, he was killed by a blind guy by accident <laughs> because his armor is so shit that when he <laughs> on the outside, you know, where armor is supposed to be hit, it malfunctions and sends you flying into nowhere. Mm. Oh, hello! Meant to do it. Thank goodness. I thought I was doing this thousand years of digestion alone. How did you fall in? What? Fell in? <laughs> Volunteered. More like it. You should have seen it. You would have dug it the most. I was flying around with my jetpack, just smoking rebels with my laser. Ba-boom, ba-boom, ba-boom. Han Solo was all, hey, wait. And I'm like, oh, I've been waiting for this for a long time, Solo. Ba-bang. The big bad Wookiee be growling in hell now. I even put one between Skywalker's eyes, right between those pretty baby blues. But then Jabba the Hutt was all, oh, no, this guy's too badass, man. So then 80 Jedi showed up. I took out about six to seven of them, but then 20 dudes finally flanked me. And I was like, you know what, kids? It's been real, Daddy-O, but I'm not giving you the pleasure. So I jumped into the pit myself. On the way down, I was thinking maybe I should have left him a party favor. Oh, I did. A thermal detonator right up their ass. Ba-boom! Oh, that's awesome. Man, at least he didn't go out like a punk. Yeah. Oh, because I looked like a badass. Are you crying? Oh. Huh? <laughs> that's funny. I'm okay. It's strange, and again, we're not really going to cover this, but uh, the, the Boba Fett that we were eventually given bears no relation to the one that we built up in our heads, and the, even the one we saw on screen. He may as well have been a completely different Mandalorian. They, they effectively had two chances to do that version of Boba Fett that we've seen, and the closest they actually get is this Lee Van Cleef guy uh, later on. So uh, this is why I feel like uh, if you've got Fett... Well, that if if you had Mando as Blondie, this Lee Van Cleef guy, and now you need an Eli Wallach, just this little scumbag guy who's always know. like you know, like you know, holding you at gunpoint and sniggering and going, "Ha ha, you're going to take me to the gold now." And then the second you get the jump on him, he's like, "Whoa, hey, we're pals, though, right?" Uh, what's Walton uh, Goggins doing at the minute? Yeah, oh, Walton Goggins oh, would be perfect for that. Oh, please, oh, please, oh, please. It's kind of perfect because um, like if you're a fan of Justified, uh, Tim Oliphant does turn up in season two as a kind of a sheriff type. And nice. Yeah, he's... Uh, it, it's, yeah. it's Or Deadwood. Yeah, I did. Well, he he's not the same honourable paragon that uh, he plays in Deadwood. I loved how he was in in that up against elsewhere. And you've got this guy who's trying to be the white knight and he's getting his white coat covered in shit and you got Al Swearingen who's like never met a problem he couldn't stab but then like <laughs> even though he's the worst man in the world like over time you're like wow he uh, he does care about quite a lot of things and he is actually really quite of like he helps people in this town even if he also feeds lots of people to pigs I love that stuff <laughs> and yeah. um, and th that's where westerns can really excel just the idea of we are out there here and there is no law but that which we give to ourselves. So how are we going to respond to that? That is the best version of the Wild West. The worst version is, I want to do what I want with no repercussions and fuck anyone who tries to make me. And I think we can all relate to that right now. Oh, yeah. But yeah, Fennec Shander Ming-Na Wen has this great kind of like she's shifty and like her name suggests a fox. 
and that you know she she's going to be able to sort of slip out of the uh, uh, any situation. So it actually comes as a real surprise when she gets blasted, and uh, it's you've grown to like her character a lot more than the friggin' gunslinger. It gives you a left turn so that you can't just. It's not a predictable show, which is good. And I like the fact that the that that kid bounty hunter who's yes absolutely comes off as sleazy and untrustworthy from the beginning. Mm-hmm. But I didn't expect that, and clearly um, Fennec Shan didn't either, that he would just shoot her. Yeah. Like, I didn't expect that at all. So uh, that was a nice turn there. I was like, oh, this kid's that cold-blooded. Okay. As it turns out, he actually blasted away most of her midriff, and she ends up having to have, like, a Terminator stomach put in. Uh, it's it's kind of insane. It's, it, this is a bit oh, in the book of Boba. It's like, oh, yeah, I took you to the the the, the mechanic people, and they, uh, they just sort of... It's this weird, like, tattoo parlor slash um, car repair shop, and they're like, okay, <laughs> I, I guess we can give her some new robot guts. It's it's <laughs> such a, a a strange sequence, but if it got us the Fennec, same people Fennec who gave Darth Maul his le- his spider legs, yeah, yeah, we're gonna give Darth Maul a spider body. Don't worry about it. This uh, plus <laughs> Chewbacca's severed head. So. Yes. <laughs> The next one is The Prisoner. This one's actually probably my least favorite, even though I still quite like it, of this first season. It's this dirty dozen, well, dirty half dozen. Uh, you got Mayfield played by Bill Burr, uh, and Ransom Malt played by Mark Boone Jr., and Shy Ann played by Natalia Tainer, and uh, Berg played by Clancy motherfucking Brown, and Zero, yeah, the yes. Joy played by Richard Ayoade, and Quinn played the uh, the brother, uh, Twilight played by uh, Ismail Cruz Cordova. There's almost too many new people to even talk about. And uh, certainly to really explore in this one episode. Uh, but And then they all betray in exactly the way you would expect. It's like, <laughs> Mando, why are you falling for this shit? Yeah. yeah. Although I have to say, like, I was baffled by all of them. I'm mm-hmm. like, why would you do, like, why would you double cross a Mandalorian like this? This is... Like this is stupid. <laughs> because everybody in Star in the Star Wars galaxy has their memory reset every thirty years, mm-hmm. so they have no idea what a Mandalorian really is. In the same way, they have no idea what a Jedi really is, despite the fact that there are people alive who probably saw them. Yeah, there's a lot of sort of oh, there, there used to be these magicians, and it's like yeah, twenty five years ago. What are we talking about? Yeah, but as we're learning, information is. Um malleable in some people's yeah. <laughs> records from this era were spotty at best um, but I, I do like that I mean they have different motivations so Sheehan the female Twilight who by the way Natalia Tenner is having a ball with these giant vampire teeth she's like ah and like mm-hmm. poking at she him with a, with a knife her mouth. yeah she's just like like nah Mando yeah we're definitely like we're not gonna betray you oh we betrayed you and she's obviously pissed at him for personal reasons so I can sort of understand why she would I love how when they get the um her brother out 
And I can't remember who he's dealing with. I think it, 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 I don't know whether it's Clancy Brown or Mayfield. He says, you know, so we make a deal, right? You're going to pay me back. And he sort of walks backwards, throws up his arms and grins in a kind of an untrustworthy way, which suggests I'm too tired to even say words that suggest the lie I'm telling you right now that you're going to get paid. I will kill you the moment I have the chance. Yeah, yeah. And and Mayfield, who comes from the planet Bostonia, is like, hey, hey, fucking forget about it. <laughs> What? Uh, honestly, I, I think Bill Burr just stuck out for me because not that he's too familiar. I actually wasn't familiar with him at that point. It's just that the specificity of his his cultural, like everything he exudes, I've not seen in Star Wars before. I mean, I've not seen um, Jedi healing in Star Wars before, but it at least feels related to but something. Paint him green and stick a wig on him, something. Yeah, we, yeah. I, I, yeah. For, for some reason, if he'd been a werewolf who had that accent, I'd be like, oh, okay, so I guess uh, Lax Sivrak was from uh, fucking Massachusetts. <laughs> <laughs> it's also weird because of the Imperial connection, which I, I know it's he's not exactly a stormtrooper, but he is, yeah, he is a sharpshooter. And so, like, because of the way they filmed those movies, like the the Imperials are all British British actors that they were hiring off of, you yeah. know, out of the population. And so he's like, "Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm just this guy who was a sharpshooter for the Empire." It's like, <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah, the, okay. The British, the British accent is the de facto Imperial accent, mm. even within the, uh, even within the universe. So much so that actually yesterday I was playing in a uh, Star Wars tabletop and my very deceptive character was pretending to be an Imperial um, officer. With a British plumbing accent. Yeah, I put on a terrible British accent. Our first catch of the day. That guy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, uh, to to his credit, Bill Burr, whose comedy I do not like, does yeah. have uh, in in season two is in one of the better episodes uh, where uh, there's this really tense kind of like they have to sneak into an imperial facility and there's this one imperial commander who will not leave them alone and they have to both talk to him and Bill Burr actually does some pretty fine acting there not so much here I think it's because no one really gets that much time to shine in here and I, I don't understand also why you'd get Mark Boone Jr. for like a minute and a half of screen time and then blow him up because he's just a scumbag and like that's that's a character who should be in a whole episode this is something that i really felt with this middle part though and when we were talking about the prospect of it being three films i was like you could make it a, a duology and yeah. just get rid of that middle section they're Whether very episodic because... very kind of monster of the week exactly and because yeah. there's this constant turnover of here's a new mm. character here's a new character here's a new character oh this they, is the have gone will become... travel section it is yeah it is but because they're like, well, we still want all of these very vivid, brightly coloured characters. If you're going to do Have Gun with Travel... Uh, will Travel. Sorry, Have Gun, Will Travel. You, your characters need to be relatively background people. They are effectively the sets for the, the your central character to come and do his hero thing mm. and then leave again. Or you make the most of one. Like the episode yeah. of the fictional yeah. show that Leo DiCaprio was guest-stirring on in... Uh, once upon a time in Hollywood, where he played this like scumbag guy who's got a girl hostage and is sort of gnashing, they weren't surrounded by five other people all trying to hog the camera at the same Absolutely. time. It's, it's <laughs> yeah. a really difficult, but are only in that one episode. It's a really difficult balance to try and get as an actor who's playing that kind of role. But if you look at something like 
okay, let's try something I'm a bit more familiar with, Quantum Leap. Mm. The, the the individual characters that Sam encounters in every episode are not so vivid and so exciting that you want to see more of them, really, mm. except for a, a handful of people who do return. Yeah. Yeah. And they're not... Uh, but but they're also not so they don't take over the story so much mm. that you then feel like well we we got a thin sheet of who that person mm. was and we really should have had more. It, the focus in these episodes is very much on what is happening, mm. and ultimately, what is happening is not all that relevant to the overarching narrative. Yeah, the child that's joined together by yeah. the the beginning and the end. It, this almost feels like, like oh sorry, go ahead, Taylor. I was going to say this one feels like the bottle episode, mm. you know, yeah. it, in analogy to, to, to the way they do normal series. It feels like it's that standalone episode. It doesn't really progress a lot. Doesn't add anything. It's just sort of there. Yeah. Well, bottle episodes are good if you really want to do character studies of existing characters. Remember that? Um, you may not have got to that Family Guy season where Stewie and Brian are stuck in a bank vault together for ages. That's a really good bottle episode. That was one of the last. Episodes of Family Guy I ever watched. I just got sick of all the fucking rape jokes. But um, yeah. but that one episode where they're going back and forth, when you're trapped and you can't do anything but talk to each other, that is a really good way of drawing out character and weakness and foibles. Whereas this actually felt, if anything, like this was the only episode of Mando that felt like an episode of a, a bit of KOTOR, Knights of the Old Republic. Yes! And it was like Mando was yes! going around this facility and every time he met robots, it was like the screen would freeze. And it's like, do you want to initiate combat? Because it's about to happen. You better start choosing your moves right now. Yeah. And it was this, it's this, this big Star Wars maze. So it kind of, it made sense there. Uh, to their credit, they kept most of these scumbags alive to come back later. And Bill Bird does come back later. But killing Mark Boone Jr., who had the least amount of screen time, seemed baffling to me. It's a tiny thing, but I did yeah, like yeah. when he fights Clancy Brown. It's like, the Kurgan is here in Star Wars. Yeah. And he's using all of his Mando tricks. And like he fires a flamethrower at the guy who just goes, hmm, I look like the literal devil. Does it look like that fire is going to affect me in any way? And they're just like yeah. throws him around the place. That was great. Yeah, um, yeah. It's one thing. It's I almost. Oh, Brendan, go. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, it, it's almost like this. This episode needed like flashbacks to mm. to show you the the relationship they had for the actual stuff they were trying to do to really stick. Yeah. Because there's because there's so many characters like either you should focus on on one or two hmm. or you or you show the dynamic before yeah. that yeah. way the new dynamic can actually land and you know look just just don't kill off scrapyard Saraman after one episode like <laughs> that guy's gold keep him around uh Karu? uh yeah um one thing i did like about this episode uh quite a bit was when Mando just decides to split them up using the uh, ships, um, like blast doors and whatnot, and then just goes full xenomorph on them. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Or I suppose yeah. half xenomorph because he doesn't actually kill them. But it's one of those isolate them and then take care of them one at a time. It's very, uh, it's very methodical, and I kind of love seeing him do that. And I like Great. that because it's well, it's sorry. Oh, just saying, it's also very animalistic. Mm. Yeah, because they also show he's capable of that earlier in the season, though, the way he absolutely batters the stormtroopers in taking the child back. Yeah. It's- I loved um, the, the stormtroopers that were uh, being, uh, that were serving the client were filthy. 
Like yes. he, he's, uh, you know, clearly a, 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 a Nazi in hiding, but he doesn't even say to his troops, polish your armor up, you look like a shambles. So you can then <laughs> juxtapose them with the troops that turn up for Giancarlo Esposito's um, Moff Gideon, because those have got like this bone white, like pristine armor. And you're like, okay, those stormtroopers were a relative pushover for one man to take out. These guys are going to mess them up. Mm. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> it also kind of indicates that uh, they've been at this sandy outpost for that long. Yeah. Ultimately, if you're in certain environments, if you tell your soldiers you have to keep your uniform absolutely pristine, mm. that's all they're going to be doing is cleaning and repairing because the sand gets into everything and knocks bits mm. off you. Another bit from... I hate sand. <laughs> it gets everywhere. It's all grainy. By the way, I hope you folks like Tatooine because they go back to Tatooine oh, a lot <laughs> in oh, season two and Book of Boba. Yeah. Like, if there's a if there's a that's weak point to this show, it's that it is very very reference heavy. Yeah. Yes. Oh yeah. The um, there are times when I, uh, I I've been like, okay, I get that reference, and they're pausing on it a little bit too long. I, I like the ones where it's like they're eating salacious crumb, and the reference itself is ensconced within a dark little joke. Yeah. They uh, originally when there was salacious crumb on a spit, there was another one who was going. <laughs> laughing at his friend's demise and they were like let's just change that then he was going ah, and crying and they were like that's even worse <laughs> that's the scene from the last jedi <laughs> yeah i mean porgs i mean to their credit look delicious <laughs> i could eat three or four porgs i love my porgs <laughs> Oh, sorry, uh, Debbie, go for it. That was one of the things that was a drawback for this show for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and mind you, I do like the show a lot, but um, it would it did bug me because this is very very in your face, all capital letters. This is Star Wars. Yeah. And guys, references are okay, but like I swear. They couldn't go five minutes in this series mm. without multiple references. Mm-hmm. And and I'm sure, and I don't have a huge connection to Star Wars. I didn't grow up watching Star Wars. So there were a lot of references I didn't pick up on, I'm sure. But I could still tell that it was references. Yeah. And I'm like, guys, tone it down. References are fine, but you don't need this many. Like... Cut it by half. Design-wise, it feels like rather than going, let's create all new scenarios with all new characters and all new races and on all new places, we need to make people feel comfortable and make people feel like Star Wars is their comfort food. So they get access to the full toy box of all the old creatures that were in other things. So, for example, the Blurgs, or the Blargs, the, the big walking lizards that Quill keeps, they were in the Battle for Endor mo- uh, TV movie, which I think you can actually see on Disney+. Plus. Yep. Uh, and uh, the, uh, the in season two, you get these big scuttling spider things, which were sort of in the background of uh, Yoda's Dagobah swamp. And they bring out a lot of creatures... And I think they they fight a crate dragon or something, do they? Or is it? It's yeah, so difficult to tell the difference between that and What's the sand. Was that a crate dragon? Uh, in in the in... second season, first episode, there's oh, a big okay. sandworm type thing. I thought, 
As they fought something that looked like a dragon, I thought it might be a Minoc. Yeah, uh, they also the mud horn that uh, he fights to actually end up with the mud horn uh, crest is exactly the same as the reek from uh, episode two's uh, uh, arena of vaginas. Go back and pause, and you'll see. <laughs> there is such a yonic influence on that uh, Geonosian <laughs> arena. But yeah, it feels more like. We're going to take this toy out. Like, here's the Imperial transporter from Kenner that we we put in Rebels, which has never been in Star Wars before. Here it is in live action. Do you like it? It's there. Okay, move on. Here's the E-Web Blaster from uh, Empire Strikes Back. Did you have that toy? That's pretty cool, right? And like, they're so excited. Like, if you watch the uh, uh, interview stuff... Favreau in particular is really excited to be doing all this stuff and, and and Dave Filoni is a massive Star Wars nerd with this encyclopedic knowledge and it feels like they've just been given license to and Kathleen Kennedy was there and she, Favreau said it's like we, we're just making these Star Wars YouTube videos and uh, Kathleen sort of put in uh, with the richest parents in the world. It was like, happy to pay yeah. the bills, Otto. And, and I was like, <laughs> but making Star Wars YouTube fan films does limit you. Like, if that's yeah. the extent of what you're trying to do. The two biker scouts having a chat at the beginning of the last episode of the first season. Perfect example of this. Their in-helmet banter back and forth reminded me very much of Red vs. Blue, but even more so of Troops, the cops parody with Stormtroopers, one of the first ever big hit Star Wars fan films shown at conventions and things. It was made in 1997, like eight years before YouTube. I joined the Empire about six years ago. I can remember as a kid, you know, watching the holographic images and being excited about the new direction that the uh, galaxy was taking. So when I was old enough, I uh, went down to the local recruitment center, you know, and signed up. And I've been here at uh, Tatooine ever since. Most people would call this the ass end of space, but I like the small town feeling you get around here. I mean, we know everybody. Everybody. And I feel I can really make a difference here. We got a uh, routine stop here. We have a report of some stolen droids, and uh, we think these might be it. Excuse me. Excuse me. Uh, you want to come over here, please? Yeah, I'm talking to you. Uh, whose droid is this? Uh-huh, it's your cousin's. Is this your cousin? Is this your cousin? Are you his cousin? No? Okay, then who are you? Ah, oh, you're his friend. Well, Mr. Friend, would you uh, step over there for a moment, please? Okay, so the uh, droid belongs to your cousin. Now, if I go over to that sand crawler over there and ask to see your cousin, is he going to have a bill of sale for this? Okay, well, what I'm going to do now, sir, is place you under imperial arrest so we can only help... Hey, am I talking to you? Am I talking to you? Then stay over there and shut your mouth. Now, if you move again, I'm uh, gonna shoot you. Yeah, that's uh, that's less funny now. All stormtroopers are bastards. Did, honestly, had... for me, the references I had more of an issue with were not so much the the stuff that harks back to the like the original trilogy and even the stuff that's, that's kind of nods to the prequels. It's Dave Filoni <coughs> making sure we never forget about the Clone Rebels. Wars and Rebels. Yeah. It's, yeah. I, again, it's still it's fine. It's absolutely fine, but it just got to the point for me where it was starting to feel laid on a little bit thick. It's worse in season two, 
but that's the yeah. the bit that kind of made me feel like, come on, guys, ease up a little bit. Mm. Yeah, because especially if you don't have a walking encyclopedia knowledge of all these references, mm. sometimes it just they they are getting in the way because they. It's really weird because this show has to walk such a fine line of playing it safe while adding new, but also, and I, I, I think Filoni's the worst offender for, I'm just going to shoehorn this into this thing I did, and I'm just going to shoehorn this thing, and mm. here's a loath cat, stuff like that. It's like The ones that bother me the most is when they use exact soundscapes. Like, the Jawas basically say the exact same things they say in New Hope mm. in the exact same order. Utini and... and yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah. Bap it, bap it. And it, yeah, none of them have uh, a unique voice at all. It is literally just the same ones, or that uh, one little droid mm. in the Prison Break episode. There which is did the a exact Wookie. same thing. There is a Wookiee in Book of Boba who, uh, when he roared, Willow pointed out, at last, a Wookiee that doesn't just sound like Chewbacca. And that's true. Every time there's ever been a Wookiee in any other yeah. Star Wars media, they've just gone to the Ben Burtt sound bank of... and just made the Chewbacca noises. And it just feels like there's one voice for an entire race. That's kind of racist. Yeah. So it was actually really gratifying to see this one Wookiee, who is a mean motherfucker. He's this bounty hunter Wookiee. And uh, like he moves like a predator. For, and he actually did play it. I, we found out he played one of the predators in... Was it Predators? Yes. In one of the recent movies. So he's got this kind of stalking... Like, he doesn't appear like Chewbacca. And That's I would right. love to see them do that more, where they go, right, here is a species, but we're going to do stuff with it, r- rather than just go, ah, ah, remember that bit? I mean, yeah. it's Star Wars. Let your imagination fly. Yeah. Why yeah. limit yourself? Like, when yeah. Baby Yoda actually talks, I'd really rather he didn't have a, a squeaky voice that was like, I do not want him to talk like Yoda. I Neither do I, be- no. Like, hey, how's it going? I've been watching you for a long time, and I disapprove of these things you do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I wanted to sound like uh, like Jin. <laughs> I wanted to sound like Din, not Pedro Pascal's voice, but that kind yeah, of cadence. That, yes, that would make. I actually, man, it would make sense because mm. de facto, Jin is his father. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and I mean, he's fifty years old, but you know, by comparison. I'd say part of his charm actually comes from the fact that he doesn't talk. I think uh, years ago I was talking about why Link in the Zelda games should start talking. And now I disagree with myself from the past. I actually think that there's something to be said for maintaining that. Uh... You played the 3DO version, didn't you? <laughs> oh, God. Well, excuse me, princess. Um, but, but, you know, for uh, example, um, uh, uh, when we first met Baby Yoda in the first episode, they're using the sound, the generic baby sounds, when Carla finds baby Tarzan. It's this sound bank of... And they stopped doing that soon after. Like, I don't think I heard them again. That's a good thing. Don't like. Don't go for generic sounds for your hero characters. Yes, because yeah. his noises have to convey. Again, it's, it's the, the fantastic thing that two big characters from this, in the Mando and the Child, mm. have to convey. Like with Mando, he has no facial expressions. He. It's not even like a case of like dread, where you've got the lower half. You have no face, mm. and he conveys through his body language, his emotions, and what he's thinking, what he's feeling. And they have to do that with Baby Yoda again. Back to the puppet, allowing them 
to use the noise and the body posture of the puppet to convey what he's thinking, what he's feeling. And it's usually food, but hey, it still works really well. <laughs> he he feels like a toddler. Mm. Yes. Having having my like my, my one year old, yes, yes. Everything goes in the mouth. Literally everything goes in the mouth. Oh my I forgot this. I forgot this. I have a seven year old and a one year old and getting reminded what a one year old oh. is like. Oh wow. What are the uh, one of the things I love most about the first film, A Fistful of Beskar, when he's got uh, the child in his cockpit and the kid starts pressing buttons and he's like, Stop it. And like moves him away, and then he gets obsessed with this little gear knob off the um, uh, the one of the uh, joysticks, and he eventually gives it to him as a plaything. And then later on, after he's given the baby Yoda away and done the bad thing that we all know is bad and regrettable, and done the thing he's supposed to do, he goes back to his cockpit very alone, and then he's like just clearing to take off, and then he just rests a finger on this joystick which doesn't have the little ball on the end and it's in amazing visual storytelling of a very simple principle but extremely powerful illustrative of his emotional turmoil oh i i adore and i can put this later but i adore no, no, the portrayal of mando mm-hmm. in, in like and the the other thing i will say just and i won't harp on this but the other thing i'm not real crazy about mm-hmm. the show is like, the dialogue is very, very Star Wars. And guys, George Lucas is not good at writing dialogue. Please, please, please stop emulating this. <laughs> Debbie, but... quit going on like a womp rat. Like <laughs> a womp rat. <laughs> There's other things on Tatooine to call people. Continue, yeah. sorry. Yeah, it, it, yeah, that's the other thing that did bug me, but... The thing that saved the show from the beginning mm-hmm. was the performances, especially Mando. Mm. And because I love a cranky, reluctant hero. Mm-hmm. And something about that is so very wonderfully human. And the fact that you get completely from the physical performance without seeing his face. The second he sees the child, mm. you know that some part of him knows that this is his responsibility now. Mm. And it's so perfectly subtly done, but it's like, oh, God damn it. And he, you can just see it. I, I don't know how they did that with with just, you know, just the physical performance in that armor. But yet somehow this is completely clearly conveyed. Mando is so human just throughout. Like he's so relatable and so and and believable. He isn't so overpowered. Like you said, he gets beaten up all the time. Hmm. But he's still believably very, very good at his job. He is still and and clearly has a code, even though he doesn't like it. But he's like, no, I can't leave this kid. God damn it. And yet but, he'll betray and uh, go back on an already pre-ingrained code from mm-hmm. his Mandalorian culture and religious strictures uh, in order to try to help this kid. Like, it, mm-hmm. the, the kid becomes his new way. This is yeah. the way. Mm-hmm. The fact and, and- that they never have to, like, come out and and spell out 
the the Mandalorians saved me as a child from a droid attack, mm-hmm. and now I have just saved this child from a droid. Welp, I guess I'm a, I have to pay it forward somehow now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which uh, brings me to uh, film three, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugnaught, which is shorter, obviously only two episodes, though they are longer episodes. Quill, who I haven't mentioned yet properly. Nick Nolte is the voice performance. Misty Rosas is the uh, physical performance. This is one of my favorite Star Wars characters ever. And I love Star Wars. He's in two episodes, the the one with the Jawas and uh, this uh, penultimate one from season one. And uh, he manages to get across. He sort of guides Mando around in that second episode. You know, he's disapproving. And when I say he's a cranky bastard, he's not just, like, swearing at him. He's just kind of... That whole, I have spoken thing, that was not in Star Wars before. That's what I love when they add something new that feels like it was always there before. Like, that's part of Ugnaught culture. And he, he has like a a very strong view on the way things should go. And again, Mando is a little innocent and like a child sometimes. He seems quite malleable to other people's version of the world, which is great for versatility for a character. If he was constantly going, no, I don't like this, whenever he was put in a situation that makes him uncomfortable, he'd get quite boring because you'd know what would piss him off. Being placed in uncomfortable situations is great for character development, but being resistant to any kind of change can effectively imprison characters and fans and creative teams. He radiates both, I'm too old for this shit energy, and he's the sage as Mm. well. and, And Nick Nolte is... I can't imagine anyone else voicing this character. That messed up voice that Nick Nolte now has is just perfect for him. And when he says, I have spoken, you're like, oh, yeah, I'm not arguing with you. (laughs) You feel it because he's got that energy of, I'm too old for this shit. I've had it with your shit. Mm. Do as I say and do it this way. And when he argues with Mando regarding IG-11, who Mando shoots in the head to in that that first episode to save the baby Yoda, Din is still sit harboring a lot of uh, uh, paranoia about um, droids. What Queel then tells him is droids have no moral code but that which we give them. He effectively voices what we say all the time when it comes to AI, clones, computers, robots. They are who we make them. They are who we program them to be. They are our children. And he is so stern in how he says, no, this droid is now not the, you know, the hired out trigger man he was originally before because I have reprogrammed him. He is a nurse. He can still kick ass, but the, uh, he takes responsibility, which parallels Din's own 
path towards becoming someone who is going to define himself by that responsibility. Mm. There's also the fact that he, the way I see the trajectory of how Mando connects with Quill, and then when he loses Quill, really that's the point at which he starts trusting IG-11. And I think in part that's because he has now come to see the droid as an extension of Quill. Because Quill says to him, "Trust if you trust me, trust my work. Trust that trust this droid work. now will mm. do what I have programmed it to do. And that sense of... The, the droid being a part of this person that he was starting to relate to and starting to trust and starting to potentially feel something for, so that when that second loss comes, it's even mm. more harsh because it's reinforcing the one that happened so fast that he didn't really have time to mourn it properly. Of all the other Mandalorians that Din Djarin meets, this is his Obi-Wan. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and also the the fact that that one of the things about Quill, which is quite subtle because of how little interaction you get with him on screen, but he keeps coming back to this idea that I used to be a slave, but I'm not anymore. Mm. That he, I, I think he bought his freedom or something, yeah. or he earned yeah. it, or whatever, however it came about. He has about, pride in that regard. He is now, nobody tells me what to do, I tell me what to do, and nobody is ever going to shape my path again. I will only do the things that I choose to do. And that's something that, without them really ever having a, a conversation about it directly, Jaron kind of takes on board. He, he incorporates that very strong sense of self <clears throat> into his own shaping of the the creed of the Mandalorians that he is initially following almost to the letter but then gradually starts to tweak and shape like his armour so that it fits him better. And he's got Quill as that example of you can choose to do a different thing because you are the person who has the final say in what you do. And I love, I love Quill in the fact that in that first episode, he is the very, very human. And obviously he's not human, but you know what I mean? Yeah. The very human motivation of, I will help you because you will take care of this problem in my area. And then I can live in peace. You have brought peace to my valley. It's a wonderful piece of Western arcana, but it works yeah. on a, uh, a, 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 a an organic level. Yeah. yeah, I love that. You know, that's that's very realistic. People who are like, yeah, I just want to do my thing here. I want to be left alone, and if you can help me do that, okay, I'll help you. Mm. Effectively, Din starts this series as lawful neutral, that is, following the Mandalorian code and following the code of bounty hunters, doing what he's told, putting people in carbonite, taking them, like, give, putting their tags down, getting the required money for them. He has got himself stuck kind of in a loop. And this first season is about him slowly pivoting from lawful neutral to lawful good. Insofar as he will try to, like, a, a lawful not so much in terms of the law that he has imposed upon him. He has to have his own code to live by. But good in this sense is when he sees something that is clearly going to go south, he doesn't just turn a blind eye to it. The Child is basically his introduction into growing more and becoming something beyond what he has known 
his life to be safe while he struck that rigid rule. The mm. child introduces that sort of, I don't say dissent, not dissent, I'm, I can't think of the right word off the top of my head, but he, it, it's that spark that starts him questioning and finding a new way. Mm. It's no longer this is the way, I need to find a new way for yeah. it to be. Interestingly, if you look at a lot of Star Wars alignment charts for D&D, I know it's, uh, it's pigeonholing uh, um, some great and multi-tiered characters. 3PO is lawful neutral, as in he will obey and do as he's told. And that's kind of how Din starts out. Mm. Well, he, he does at one point work for Jabba, mm. and it's, Jabba tells mm-hmm. him what to do and he translates for him. So Giancarlo Esposito turns up and is terrifying to to the very core, and yeah. uh, he has that strange sort of smirk where like he's not getting angry and he's not he's not um, uh, like you know ranting and raving and he's not being outwardly dangerous, but you're terrified of what he might do. And at this point, this is when um, they all start getting it's it's like a Peckinpah movie. He get there, everyone's stuck, um, and like the the. Bolivian army's got them. It's uh, it's Butch and Sundance and uh, uh, uh-huh. the Wild Bunch. Obviously, um, Butch and Sundance wasn't pecking part, but that was directed by George Roy Hill. And Moff Gideon certainly has some LaFour's energy there. He needs a little straw boater. It's got that sense of them being really up against it. And the Empire were not the prevailing law, but now that Moff Gideon's turned up, he's made them that. Mm. It does give you that sense of uh, what we were saying at the beginning about the world building, that that broader sense of the umbrella of the Empire having at least nominally gone, and that top level of the the Emperor being in charge of everything having been removed, you then have this second layer of very authoritarian dudes Mm. who still have their jackboots, and still have, at the very least, their personal squads of bodyguards and don't intend to let go of what little authority they've got. And it is actually quite terrifying, the idea of there being more than none of these guys still tromping around the galaxy trying to carve out not even a name for themselves, but just something that resembles the power that they had before. Maintaining being warlords. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, he is the first time since Tarkin where mm. you go. I feel why you're a moth. He, especially because he literally just walks on the, the yeah. second he walks on the screen, he just goes, "No, this is mine now." He grabs your attention, he holds it, and he is truly, yeah, sorry, Krennic. Yes, he yeah. is like Krennic. No, no, no. This is how you do it. He's intimidating. He's terrifying. He's threatening, and he does it with a smile. With such ease. Absolutely. There's something about that actor that just... I haven't even seen Breaking Bad, but I've seen the bits bits of him from Breaking Bad and just something about his screen presence. That man just exudes terror and exudes menace. It's unnerving. Yeah. 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 The kind of painted still image of him in the credits of the last sequence of Mm -hmm. him standing on top of the ruined... uh, TIE fighter, mm-hmm. even just a painting of the guy, I felt that menace. Yeah. yeah. Part of it is that what he wields when he first turns up is knowledge. He doesn't walk in there with a blaster and take them out mm. with a, a perfectly aimed hit or, um, you know, he doesn't. 
He's although not a he's hammer blow. This, although he's got this squad of, of stormtroopers behind him, he doesn't send them sweeping in straight mm. away. He comes in, he drops a handful of facts about each of them and has them all shaking in their boots. Cuts them to their core with a scalpel. Exactly. This is information that nobody really should have about them and certainly a person a single person should not have this information about all of them mm. that's scary because then it, in this environment this is not a place where you could just google somebody and come up with this information this is somebody who clearly still has his fingers in the pies that the empire was built on mm. don't build your buildings on pies they don't make good foundation <laughs> <laughs> Fingers in the pies of the foundation, Jesus. Yeah, I did. <laughs> Sorry. That metaphor got away from you a little. It did a bit. His, uh, his little army here, in real life, at least the folks playing them, his, his small squad of terrifying stormtroopers, was the uh, a contingent of the 501st Legion, who are people who dress up as stormtroopers uh, habitually for charity events. And uh, they go to hospitals, and I was saying to Sharon, like... I, they're, they're dressed as bad guys they're dressed as Nazis and they yeah. go to hospitals and go oh all of you kids yeah you, you, here's a stormtrooper and the kids are like oh they come for me <laughs> they're a bit too convincing but at the same time uh, they actually, I think they use uh, a different um, group of them for the um, second season which or actually I think it's in the book of Boba where um, baby Yoda flashes back to Order 66 and it's got some uh, episode three clone troopers played by real people in armor gunning down Jedi. And George said proudly during the production of uh, episodes two and three, we never made a single genuine suit of armor. And I, I was that was always a baffling statement to be proud of yeah. for me. Because it's like, you've just declared that you're the opposite of Weta Workshop. And it's like, you, you can't tell, but none of these clone troopers are, are real. It's like, no, we can we can tell yeah, by the right. way they move and look and how the light falls on them. And it looks worse every year. But uh, yeah, the 501st Legion, they build their own armor with injection plastic and they maintain it. They care about these costumes as much as Weta Workshop would. So it is so perfect that you can bring the Star Wars fans who care about Star Wars the most to the point where they live it. And, and actually get them up on screen, sort of just making your thing even more of this. I mean, it the whole thing does have a feel of fan service about it. But at least for this first season, they maintain strong storylines and strong characters so that even though there are those, ah, remember this toy? Uh, moments, it still manages to maintain its own momentum. Absolutely. I can see that, yeah. Uh, one of my favorite uh, little uh, tiny moments, and this is something that, like, they don't even do as an ah, but I was like, I know that. I know what you're doing there. The the point when he's uh, in the Tatooine wastes and uh, riding back to Moss Eisley uh, on a dewback, there's a, a low angle camera shot of him just up on top of this thing. And I'm like, I've seen that. That is in a production still in the original novelization of the original Star Wars book which i bought for oh like, yeah 10p at a jumble sale when i was nine <laughs> and it's just it's not a shot from the film it's just a sort of that they were on set they photographed the stormtrooper on, on a, a clearly at the time totally immobile dewback because they couldn't get it to walk 
and it was like you know just stick that in the uh, in amongst the photos and it'll give kids some flavor when as they read the book and it's, it's such an obscure thing to pay homage to and that's my favorite kind of reference because if you don't get it it's just a really good shot and that's when Easter egg really ought to be innocuous to those not in the know mm. and comforting to those who are in the know. Yeah. Uh, I mean, to, to their credit, uh, it, it gets a lot more blatant later on. Uh, but, um, but they managed to sort of rein it in and, and keep it mostly stable and on track in this one. EV99, uh, the uh, cantina droid, was previously Jabba's torture droid. This time it's voiced by Mark Hamill. <laughs> I did not expect that, especially as EV-99 was originally written by Kevin J. Anderson into the uh, Jabba the Hutt um, book as female, as, as female as you can get droids, although there's definitely been very coded female droids <laughs> over the years. Uh, uh, L7. LZ from, uh, yeah, L7 from uh, Solo. That was a horribly handled scenario. They, they, they need to do that again and do it properly rather and, and actually have address the fact that droids are in the yoke of servitude, and that's worrying, because everyone is complicit in this particular uh, hierarchy. They may have been trying to rebalance mm. that a little bit with Quill's uh, discussion about bit, how yeah. droids are what we ask them to do. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's also neat to see that Baby Yoda, uh, when Mando's arm wrestling with uh, Cara Dune, uh, Baby Yoda, dis- uh, his actual name is Grogu, by the way. It uh, turns yeah. up uh, in uh, season two. Uh, Grogu an- uh, interprets this as Kara is hurting his dad and starts fucking force choking her. That's the first sign that, again, much like this goes in line with the philosophy, they are what we make of them. Yoda- Baby Yoda here is Din's child. He has to teach him not uh, to-, to question prior to using aggression, to not simply go to immediate angry defensiveness. And I love the fact that that is, is laid down in a way that makes you not quite sure about this, this, this little guy who's been so cute and been in so many memes, drinking soup, and you're like, ah, he could probably kill any one of us. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's terrifying. But yeah. the point is, he doesn't know any better. He is literally a, a child who's going, oh, you're hurting my dad. I, 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 oh, I can do this. Yeah. He doesn't yeah. know that that is wrong. He's, he doesn't He's realize a toddler he with a firearm. Yeah. yeah. Going back just a little bit, mm-hmm. when he when he first orders the bone broth um, <laughs> for Grogu, mm-hmm. and the waitress is trying to get him to order some for himself as well, I almost wanted him to be like drinking it with a straw underneath the helmet. <laughs> 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 he doesn't take the helmet off, he just gets a straw and... <laughs> I mean, he'd have to do that, wouldn't he? If he can't take yeah. his helmet off, how's he eating? How's he eating a kebab? He's, yeah. he's, he's, he takes his helmet off when there is literally nobody alive around to see mm. it. Mm. Which uh, was obviously the uh, the scene when he does that with Taika Waititi's magnificently performed IG-11. Oh, yeah. Uh, it, it, it's kind of, it, it brought tears to my eyes because it's mm-hmm. he's given up at that point and he's so like reliant on this code he's been taught that the idea of taking off the helmet is like, I I would pretty much rather just die than do this. And just that the desperation and the vulnerability in his eyes when, when that helmet finally comes off, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, again, Pedro Pascal is not only a fantastic actor, he's a fantastic person. I really want to see him go far. I was amazed that his first yeah. big screen role was Wonder Woman 84, and it did not make best use of his talents. Yeah. But, yeah. 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 <clears throat> One thing about um, the fact that he never takes off his armor related to eating mm. is, of course, you know, in narrative, eating is how people connect with one another. Yeah. When you have people come together for a meal, it is supposed to be communion, and they are building a community. Yeah. And that's why, you know, things like uh, the Red Wedding in Game of Thrones or Dracula refusing to eat with Renfield Mm. in the original Dracula is the sort of uh, tip-off to these are probably bad people doing bad things. Mm. So you have uh, Din here who has to find other ways to make those connections. He can't just have a meal with somebody, break bread with them, and become their friend. Mm. He which is probably why when it comes to the to the climax of this season, he's got two people he can rely on. Mm. Despite all the people that he has met throughout this. He's got two people that he trusts. And I feel like uh, Quill's death was earned. Um, the yes, like w- w- the the race to do the right thing, and you actually feel like he could make it, and you really, really want him 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 too. But just the way it was shot, you never actually see it happen. And then when you cut to him just lying there, it's devastating Mm -hmm. in a way that kids can totally get without it feeling too extreme that's violence handled in a way where you see the consequences and they hurt yeah Uh and he's established enough of himself and passed on enough knowledge for you to feel like part of that will continue he's done the elder's job yeah no just talking about um Jin taking off or not taking off the helmet like I'm sorry but a religion where you can't remove your helmet is stupid (laughs) it is this isn't a turban a yarmulke a headscarf or even a burqa this helmet acts as a solid impenetrable wall with a narrow one-way window in it which Mando is stuck inside when anyone else is near him that makes for a shockingly lonely existence. It, it paints this as, uh, um, as uh, follow it, is that uh, this particular sect of the Mandalorians are cultish, would be the best way of putting it. They're very mm. much a cultist. This is the way. Uh, we're going back to the whole explaining, you know, we eat food together to build the community. Well, cults don't want you mixing with other people and yeah. getting any yeah. new ideas. Yet we're back again. Alex was pointing out how the armor was going. Is this the way? And you're seeing perhaps something engine that he might grow and become something more mm. than just this particular set or sect of Mandalorians. Uh, you get that later on when we get to meet um, oh Kitty Sackhoff's character whose name has just gone out of my head. Bo-Katan. Bo-Katan. Yeah. yeah. Oh. I yeah. did not know she was in. Oh, she's totally nice. in it. Live oh, action. I'm... Apologies if that's a spoiler, but um, yeah. You, no, you... I don't care, but that's exciting. Oh, yeah, like, yeah. I love her. There is they actually a point where they go to a bar and sit and talk, and, mm. of course, they remove their helmets. Yeah. Ah. And then you get into a whole thing about what's going on, fleshing more out about that particular sect of Mandalorians. Yeah. So, yeah, I, again, you can I get very culty vibes from that particular set of Mandalorians, mm. even though 
they do rise up and help out at some points and you know we get a very cool yeah. scene in this season where they turn up to help him yeah at the end of uh, uh, A Fistful of Beskar when that one Mandalorian does a flyby as he's flying away it's like salute yeah. I have never seen a Mandalorian salute before or since but <laughs> that's fine I love, I love the fact that I think he, is that the line where he goes I've got to get one of those yeah that's the one mm-hmm. and isn't that Mandalorian John Favreau yeah that is yeah. the big uh, uh, chonky warrior um that is that is kind of a next time baby moment yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's a but it does pay off at least at the end of uh, uh, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugnaught. My my squeakiest moment about this whole season is uh, it's the dark saber. Yeah, I had that yeah. down there as a dark saber question mark note. It comes into play quite a lot later. Uh, I mean, we don't need to explain it because most people listening will have seen seasons two and and uh, Book of Boba. Because I think yeah, I believe this is the actually the the second version of a of a dark saber because mm. the original dark saber was like a. I think that was the name of a, a super weapon from the expanded universe yeah, books. Yeah. It was like a base. And and honestly, this is one of the so I think Mandalorian is a really good season one specifically is a really good demonstration of of how just telling an engaging story is how you get the stuff that people want to show up again, mm-hmm. rather than just using that stuff to like shore up a weaker narrative because every time you know i don't want to like talk about mando season two Mm. but every time like season one gets this little core cast of characters and gives them just enough really good meat especially in those last two episodes where you get like you get a full heel turn and then face turn from grief karga it's it's like really just like well-observed character dynamics Mm -hmm. and so when season two happens Anytime a season one character starts, it's like, oh yeah, you lean forward to your season. This person and you know, but but anytime like one of the the Dave Filoni regulars showed up, it was like, uh, okay, I I guess we'll, I guess we'll, uh, okay, sure. And then but, Dave uh, Filoni himself turns up. Yeah, he's his, was his <laughs> name Wolf something or other. It's like you know what, just just bring back the champ. Come on, I want more yeah. car weathers. Give me more of the champ. Definitely. Yeah, I I loved his character. Because, again, he felt very, very human. And he felt very, like, the the heel turn and then face turn. Like, both felt earned and believable. Yeah, I definitely bought it when he was saying, I was going to do this to betray you, but after what happened last night, I can't do that. Mm. Yeah. It also felt uh, in season two uh, more like... Uh, there were several characters who turn up that seem to be auditioning for their own TV shows. And mm. that that's not what this felt like. Yeah. Season two almost has the Iron Man 2 problem. Hey, we're setting up other things and kind mm. of not doing enough to forward our own things. John Favreau wrote most of the scripts for these. He didn't direct <clears throat> any of them, as far as I can tell. Uh <laughs> Uh, at least certainly not the first season. Uh, the uh, directors yeah. were... Dave Filoni directed episodes one and episode five, the Tatooine one, which he also wrote. Bryce Dallas Howard uh, directed episode four. Deborah Chow, episodes three, so that's the last part of uh, Fistful of Beskar, and seven, so that's the first part of Good, the Bad, and the Ugnaught. And Rick Fukumea, episodes two and six, which he wrote along with Christopher Yost, and Taika Waititi directed eight, the one with uh, IG-11 and that fantastic performance of his. It's it's a close-knit group of directors, and they, they all seem to be, uh, you know, working very well with each other. 
Again, I, I don't really want to get off on a massive rant about Dave Filoni because he provided a whole generation of Star Wars fans with a new and expanded and extended version of Star Wars. I'd say Mando is the, uh, the, the character we've seen on screen in live action the most of any Star Wars character. He's had more than Luke Skywalker in terms of hours that we've spent with him. Uh-huh. Uh, but Dave Filoni worked on Obi-Wan and uh, Anakin for hour after hour after hour, and Ahsoka was totally his baby. And so there's a lot, of, a lot of Star Wars storytelling there, which is meaningless to people above a certain age and everything to people below a certain age. If you think all the way back to the end of 2019 when we saw the rise of Skywalker in the cinema, just before... Everything crashed to a halt in early 2020. Some folks enjoyed Rise of Skywalker. Some felt relief that a lot of the ground laid out in The Last Jedi had been walked back so forcefully. And I just felt a great depression and accepted that from now on, Star Wars was going to be a mix of things I liked and embraced and some things I really did not like. And a lot of stuff I feel neither here nor there about. And since Star Wars means so much in different ways to different people, spanning movies, books, comics, video games, and TV, that idea of of only liking some Star Wars stuff and not caring about others appears to be inbuilt to a multi-tiered mythology. However, my eventual recourse regarding the movies after a long time thinking about how The Rise of Skywalker ended things was to pare down the nine-part Star Wars saga, casting aside all other spin-offs and shows until it became a sextet of films, which, when watched over six nights, actually does form a genuinely satisfying story once the superfluous information has been trimmed away. And it's in an unusual order, setting up questions, answering them, and then elaborating. It's also one you might want to consider showing kids who've never seen a Star Wars before. So, it goes... The Force Awakens first, then Star Wars, then The Empire Strikes Back, then Revenge of the Sith, which I re-edited for this collection, although you can't get access to that, just watch the regular Revenge of the Sith, then Return of the Jedi, and finally, The Last Jedi. Seven, four, five, three, six, eight. I'm fucking with you numerically. (laughs) And the, the Last Jedi has that conclusion from Leia as the ragtag band of resistance flies off in the Millennium Falcon We have everything we need. Meanwhile, across the galaxy, new, bright-eyed youngsters are being told the legend of Luke Skywalker renewed and looking to the stars with dreams of their own. The end. I think I might have to watch it in that order. I like that. Uh, Any questions and any more on Mando before we go? I think for me, Mando is actually a a really important step for Star Wars because Mm -hmm. it establishes that Star Wars is... A universe and you can tell different stories it was the very thing that the marvel cinematic universe did especially with something say like captain so captain america and the winter soldier we have a superhero universe with a spy movie here we have this sci-fi universe with space wizards and whatnot but here we have a grounded story about a bounty hunter we have a western mm. and it shows that you should in theory with this setting be able to tell it any story that you want you want to tell the grand story of the overarching return of the space which is great you want to tell this down-to-earth story about this character 
finding something he didn't know he needed and growing and nurturing that in in the Mandalorian, great. You can do anything in this universe, and I think it's the Mandalorian is very a very important step. Now, do they make mistakes and do they whiff stuff? Yeah, of course you are. You're going to do that every, every time. It's not everything's going to hit a hundred percent of the time, but I think it establishes that Star Wars isn't isn't just this set of movies. It is a, a literal universe that you you should be able to play in and tell whatever story that you want. And to that end, I think we've probably seen a, a very successful sort of, I guess, stable for introducing new characters to continue on possibly into the movies if if we we end up seeing something like, I guess, worthwhile finally coalesce since they've been kind of dragging their feet since since episode nine. Mm. But I mean, it would seem like the the obvious choice for a the next big hero of the next big trilogy, you know, to follow a slightly older baby Yoda, because then you can just have whatever sort of CGI or 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 puppet creation, you know, and then not have to deal with the the un- for unfortunate realities of like your main actor turning into an anti-vax nut job or you know something like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, you it's know, it's not like quite a common issue these days, unfortunately. Unless the puppeteers are like, we hate vaccinations, in which case you just need new puppeteers. Yeah, but I think it's also important to look at as like a the necessary balancing act of of blazing new trails in Star Wars versus just recycling old stuff because Mandalorian is always at its best when it's it's playing with these new characters and showing you a different dynamic than we've because we've never seen a dynamic in Star Wars like this before and that's why it's so people basically turned around on Star Wars after Rise of Skywalker and everyone was disappointed like with the next two episodes of Mandalorian everyone was like woohoo Star Wars is back it took hmm. a week and a half <laughs> yeah as we're learning, mm-hmm. these certain fan bases are kind of fickle beasts. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Didn't take a week and a half for us in England. We had to wait until March 24th, 2020. Twelve weeks. And we got Mando then, and by that point, no American wanted to talk about it. That's why this show's coming out now. Although you Yanks are all forgiven for not really wanting to talk about Mando, because we had, uh, checks notes. The, oh, the first global pandemic of our lifetimes. And there's just time to say a massive thank you to everyone who supports us on Patreon every week. You have kept us going through the dark times. And the patrons who have the most midi-chlorians are our $15 tier who get credit every episode, so thank you too. Aaron Lecluse. I'm going to be Obi-Wan this time, just to celebrate the Obi-Wan thing. Aaron Lecluse. Abel Savard. Alex Brewington. Angus Lee. Benjamin Hoffer. Brian Novak. Or maybe I should be Obi-Wan from The Clone Wars. James Arnold Taylor, so he has this kind of Anakin, mind your manners sound to him. Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolfe. I sound like the Beatles in Yellow Submarine. What's that then, love? Kieran Dashler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Daniel Salguero. Or maybe I should be Obi-Wan played by Ewan McGregor. That business in Cater Nemoidia doesn't, doesn't count. Dan Hepner, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Finbar Nicole, Frankie Punzi. No, I tease Sharon, because whenever she says, possibly, she sounds exactly like Obi-Wan in episode two when Anakin's like gabby with him and he goes, possibly. 
If Sharon was a Star Wars character, it would be Obi-Wan. A big thank you to Frankie Punzi, Greg Downing, Jameis Enright. Hello there. Jesse Ferguson, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Johan Clayson, Joe G. This little one isn't worth the trouble. Come, let me get you something. Do you like pina coladas? Getting caught in that... Well, there's not much rain on Tatooine. Josh Waster, Kat Ersman, Kevin Vahey, Lorraine Chisholm, Matthew A. Siebert, Matthew Webb, Michael Hasco, Robbie Crow, Sarah Montgomery, Timu Hellas Hayu. Now that's a name I haven't heard in a long time. A long time. Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Toby Skeels Jungius, Tom Painter, Trey Contreras. If you strike this podcast down, it will become more powerful than you can possibly imagine. And Valencia Burns. Thank you very much to our patrons. I'm sure you'll all be back, and in greater numbers. The entire time while I was watching this, I was thinking of a meme that I saw. Um, I'm sure lots of people have seen it, and it has an older Grogu kind of sitting there, and you can see Din's necklace and you know other things to indicate who it is. And on the side of it, it has a conversation. And the conversation goes, Master Grogu, I thought Jedi were not supposed to form attachments. Attachments do not lead to the dark side. Fear of losing them does. I don't understand. You can be attached to something, but not fear to lose it? Treasure those around you while you can, and rejoice when they return to the Force. You mean when they die? Death is a natural part of life. I wish it weren't. But it is. To accept that the dark side will never take you. I have to live knowing that life and death are inseparable? (sighs) Sounds impossible. Master gently touches his pauldron. No, Padawan. It's not impossible. It is the way. Oh! Nice! Nice! I love that so much. I'll I'll send you the image. Yeah. I think we need to turn that into a little audio play. Yeah, I think you just did. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no, with a a good voice actor. Not with me. That worked for us. I don't know. I think you can play the Padawan. I'll play Yoda. (laughs) There we go. Awesome. Thank you so much, Karu. Um, I would say any more, but any more is getting put before that. Oh, Sharon's crying now. Okay, we got to go. Right. It's 10 o'clock at night and me and Sharon and Taylor are nodding off. So let's uh, also Debbie's voice. I'm assuming you're not having a ball over there, but um, but thank you so, so much for being able to hold it together for, for these two hours. Oh, no worries. I'm I'm all right. Like I said, it's not, as long as I don't talk too much, okay. it's not, like, it's not painful. Okay. Go drink some mango juice or something soothing. Yeah, <laughs> I will. <clears throat> okay, so uh, the next time we talk about anything Star Wars related, it will, again, be because we have something to say. For the aforementioned, some of the stuff we're going to love, some of the stuff we're going to be indifferent to, and some of the stuff we're not going to like. And I think if all fandoms could actually just go, you know what? Let's just do that from now on. It might be a hell of a lot healthier way to move forwards as opposed to a, a sense of perceived ownership. Yeah. <clears throat> so before we go, can our guests tell us where the listeners can find your best stuff? We'll start with Brendan. 
Well, I am currently part of uh, the the Synapse uh, kind of roundtable review of the recent Arrow video Shaw Brothers Volume One set. Oh, nice. Um, we are, yeah, we're we're making our way through through those nineteen seventies uh, kung fu slash genre classics uh, with you know a bunch of contributors, kind of like giving our our thoughts on these these big genre making films, like uh, specifically the uh, um, King Boxer slash the Five Fingers of Death, uh, which is where. Kill Bill borrows those up, those sirens. Five from point the palm exploding heart technique. Yeah, <laughs> yeah the, the, the sirens come from there. But uh, hmm. that's at Synapse. That's C I N A P S E dot uh, dot C O. Uh, or you can follow me on Twitter at B L C Agnew. Taro. Um, it's been quite a while since I've put anything out into the. Uh, universe but i'm still fairly i'm still proud of my stuff from sequentially yours which you can find at sequentially-yours.com if you want to talk deep dives in comic into comic books and uh plot summaries and all of that wonderful stuff and taylor nova you can find me over at the game burst podcast where we recently celebrate our our one thousandth episode holy oh, shit wow. oh well big congrats done. that's amazing <laughs> That's yeah, a lot of game chat. <laughs> that that's about wow. twelve years wow. of uh, episodes. That literally dropped fairly recently. So go check that out. You can find us bringing you the gaming news in about well, it should be thirty minutes, but let's be honest, it's about forty-five. <laughs> <laughs> we tangent a fair bit. We've got head over there for the latest gaming news, and uh, if Jerome's on, absolutely brilliant recommendations. That man has cost me so much money. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm just going to do my uh, addition here. 1,000 times, let's say, an average of 30 minutes. So 500 straight hours. So if we divide that by 24, that's 21 days of listening to Game Burst straight. And I am the... Wow. Uh, not to toot my own horn, I am the last original member standing. <laughs> Believe it or not. Wow. <laughs> well done. Well done. Okay, so we will be back next week. I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And this is the way. <laughs>